You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, March 21st, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. If you want to go ahead and grab your Bibles, make your way to 2 Timothy chapter 1. For those of you that are guests with us this morning, my name is Robert and I am one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. And I get the privilege this morning of reading and teaching from God's Word, and it is our normal course to take a book of the Bible, to start in the beginning of that book, and to work our way through the entirety of that book, kind of verse by verse, thought by thought together. And this morning, we're picking back up in our journey through this letter. Uh, And as you make your way there, uh, let me just ask you this as we get started. Um, Ten years ago, a best-selling book swept the nation and, and really the globe. And if we had the time and I could give you three guesses as to what the topic of that book was, I, I probably would bet that no one in here would guess it, uh, even though I would say well over half of you probably own the book. Um, in her book, 1,000 Gifts, Anne Voskamp wondered aloud, how do we find joy in the midst of deadlines? debt, drama, and daily duty? What does the Christian life really look like when your days are gritty, long, and sometimes even dark? A decade later, you could probably add to that list when your days are full of fear, pandemics, divisions, anger, and disappointments. Now, you may have the book at home, maybe you read it, maybe you didn't, but I'm going to go ahead and spoil it for you. Here's her conclusion. It's only in the expression of gratitude for the life we already have that you and I discover the life we've always wanted, a life we can take, give thanks for, and break for others. It's kind of hard to believe that Just 10 years ago, the entire world, not just the Christian world, but the world was captivated by gratitude. We all began to learn over and over again that when you actually begin to look for things to be grateful for, you begin to see them all around you. And when you begin to look and see those things all around you, you realize once again that it doesn't cost you anything to be grateful for what you already have. When Anne wrote her book, she was writing in the great Christian tradition around the idea of gratitude hundreds of years before, trying to encourage and implore his congregation in Geneva. John Calvin said one Sunday morning that God requires nothing greater from us as his people than giving thanks. Giving thanks is a more acceptable service than all sacrifices. God is continually heaping upon his people innumerable benefits. Therefore, listen to him, ingratitude is intolerable. What's intolerable? Ingratitude. More recently, Robert Hayes, he's a New Testament theologian, he he wrote a book called The Moral Vision of the New Testament. Robert Hayes wrote this in that book, the fundamental human sin is the refusal to honor God and give thanks. And if Hayes is accurate, it would stand to reason that 
if our fundamental sin is ingratitude, then the appropriate response to God's ongoing faithfulness, the gratitude of his people, stands to change the whole world. The reality of it is science is actually catching up to this reality. I'm going to read you something this morning from an article titled, Scientists Show How Gratitude Literally Alters the Human Heart and Molecular Structure of the Brain. This article and the research it quotes is not from a Christian source. In fact, we're going to quote research being done at UCLA and Cal Berkeley. But I want you to listen to this real quick. The article begins this way. Gratitude is a funny thing. In some parts of the world, somebody who gets a clean drink of water, some food, or a worn-out pair of shoes can be extremely grateful. Meanwhile, at the same time, somebody else who has all the necessities they need to live can be found complaining about something. What we have today is what we once wanted before, but there's still a lingering belief out there that obtaining material possession is the key to happiness. Sure, this may be true, but that happiness is temporary. The truth is that happiness is an inside job. It's a matter of perspective. And in a world where we are constantly made to feel like we are lacking and always wanting more, it can be difficult to achieve or experience actual happiness. Many of us are always looking towards external factors to experience joy, when really it's all related to internal work. This is something, this writer says, that science is just starting to grasp as well, as shown by research coming out of UCLA. Research out of UCLA's uh, mindfulness program says this, having an attitude of gratitude changes the molecular structure of the brain. It literally keeps the gray matter functioning at a higher level and makes us healthier and happier. Their research went on to show through nine different studies that people who intentionally counted their blessings tended to be far happier on a subjective rated experience and experienced less depression than they had previously reported. And if you're one of the, I can't even remember how many copies sold of Voskamp's Thousand Gifts, if you're one of those that actually read it, you realize that this habit, this practice, is the very thing that she was pointing people towards. But the study that the article mentioned that fascinated me the most came out of Cal Berkeley, which if you know anything, you know that is no bastion of Christian conservatism or Christian theology. And out of Berkeley's psychology research center, this study came out. Researchers at the University of Cal Berkeley recruited people who had self-professed and diagnosed mental health difficulties, including people suffering from anxiety and depression. The study involved nearly 300 adults who were randomly divided into three groups. So all three groups received professional counseling services, but the first group was also instructed to write a letter of gratitude to another person every week for three weeks. The second group was asked to write about their deepest thoughts and feelings about negative experiences they had endured. The third group didn't write anything, but they received professional counseling. So all three received the same professional counseling. One group was asked to write intentional letters of gratitude to another person. The other group was asked to write personally about their own thoughts and experiences of negative experiences. The third group just got counseling. What did they find? Here's the result. 
Compared to the participants who wrote about negative experiences or only received counseling, those who wrote letters of gratitude reported significantly better mental health for up to 12 weeks after the writing exercise ended. The study went on to suggest that gratitude writing can be beneficial not just for healthy, well-adjusted individuals, but also for those who struggle with mental health concerns. In fact, it seems practicing intentional gratitude on top of receiving psychological counseling carries greater benefits than counseling alone, even when that gratitude practice is brief. Most interestingly, when compared with those who wrote the gratitude letters with those who didn't, the gratitude letter writers showed greater activation in the medial prefrontal cortex. This is striking, as this effect was found three months after the letter writing ended. This indicates that simply expressing gratitude may have lasting effects on the actual functioning of the human brain. While not conclusive, this finding suggests that practicing gratitude may help to train the brain to be more sensitive to the experience of gratitude down the line, and this could contribute to improved mental health and communal security over time. So let me ask you this, hundreds of years before Anne wrote her book and hundreds of years before UCLA and Cal Berkeley and all these other organizations began to do these studies, that Sunday morning when Calvin was imploring his congregation towards the expression and the awareness of gratitude, was he being hyperbolic when he said, the stability of the world depends on God's people rejoicing in God's works? If on earth such praise of God does not come to pass, then the whole order of nature will be thrown into confusion. The very stability of our order, of our unity, of our joy, depends on rejoicing in, remembering, and recounting the faithfulness and goodness of God. That's what gratitude is. So it's no surprise as we come back to Paul's letter to Timothy, here in 2 Timothy, the the overarching theme this morning is that of gratitude. When Paul continues in this letter to Timothy, he continues this way, I thank God whom I serve. Gratitude. It's how Paul begins this opening exhortation to Timothy. And I want to remind you a few things as we look at what he actually says this morning. My first is this, remember to read it like a human. Paul wrote these words while he was literally chained to a floor or to a wall. Researchers aren't exactly sure on that detail. But most likely in the Mamertine prison, the literal dark, dank hole in Rome, awaiting at any moment and at any time his imminent execution. And if you were with us a couple of weeks ago when we just began to look at this letter and kind of got the big overview of what actually happened before that brought the writing of the letter to pass, you may remember that Paul was no stranger to hard times. He's no stranger to difficult circumstances. And in fact, a, just a, a brief look at his life reminds us that There were endless threats on his life everywhere he went. 
He was unjustly stoned to death on the edge of death one time, left outside the city for dead, beaten multiple times, mocked everywhere he went, apprehended by mobs who wanted to kill him. And at this point in this writing of this letter, the last letter that he wrote before he would be executed, Paul had already served a multi-year prison sentence before and been released. He's been through hard times. He knows difficult circumstances. And if you read it like a human and think about it, it, it would be fair to realize that if just one of those things had happened unjustly to us, we'd be looking for every interview opportunity to give, every article to write, every talk show circuit to go on. But Paul didn't live his life out of this sense of being a victim. He didn't sit there in prison and dwell on the difficulty of his journey and count up all the ways that he had been disappointed by people around him and frustrated, all the different ways his needs weren't being met. No, Paul continued to model for God's people a different way, a different path more specifically, a path a lady named Jenny Allen wrote about in her book, Get Out of Your Head. And in that book, she said, there is a better way the way exhibited by Paul, and she calls it the way of gratitude. And in her book, she would encourage God's people that in choosing the way of gratitude, we are choosing to refuse to be slaves to our circumstances. This other way, this other path, this way of gratitude allows us to acknowledge our suffering with, without abdicating, without giving up our joy. and allows us to, to fight for that which is just, but to fight for it from a place of peace. Why? Because our identity isn't wrapped up in that situation or that cause. Because we're secure in who we are in Jesus. You see, as we look back at this letter, we remember that Paul doesn't deny his realities. He doesn't deny the reality of what he suffered. He doesn't deny the reality of where he is. But he sees and he understands his circumstances in light of God's character and purpose. In fact, later on in the letter, we'll get to it in a few weeks, Paul will remind Timothy that I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. See, Paul is seeing his life, he's seeing his situation, he's seeing his circumstance in the light of God's character, God's faithfulness, and God's purpose. That light, that lens is giving Paul the clarity to see his life and here in just a second, the things and the ways in which God is working in Timothy's life with such great clarity. It allows him to actually see that which he can be grateful for. And as we look here in a minute exactly at what Paul points out, I also want you to take note of this. Don't miss how others-centered Paul's gratitude is here. These verses, this whole section that we've read this morning, it's Paul expressing gratitude to God for what he sees God doing in Timothy. And the joy that is coming out of Paul as he expresses gratitude to God for the way that he sees God working in Timothy is a happiness and a joy that isn't derived from the circumstance that Paul is in. 
he's able to experience joy and happiness as he sees God working positively in someone else's life, even though he's sitting in a prison and chained to a wall. Don't miss it this morning. Paul expresses an other's centeredness that is truly countercultural. He's joyful while chained up because he's able to rejoice, express gratitude for what God is doing in Timothy. And it's helpful this week as you go back and you read these verses, it's helpful to remember and be aware of just how easy it is for us to allow envy and covetousness to blur, to obscure, to even block the flow of rejoicing and gratitude for what God is doing in other people's lives because we can't seem to get out of our own way. Our world focuses our hearts and tries to bend our hearts so deeply back towards ourselves to focus on what needs we have that we think aren't being met by other people, by the church, maybe even by God himself. So take note as we go through this and as you read it together this week of just how capable Paul is by the work of God's spirit within him to see and rejoice in the way that God is working in someone else's life and be able to rejoice with Timothy. You see, rejoicing with those who rejoice is simply expressing gratitude to God for his grace in someone else's life in that particular moment. That's all it is. So gratitude is the theme of these verses from the big picture. But with the time we've got left, more specifically, I want us just to consider at least four objects of Paul's gratitude specifically here. And I think as we do, what we'll find is that these objects of Paul's gratitude are often overlooked and undervalued in our own lives. And that's to our own detriment because they are profound influences on the shaping of our hearts and lives. And I think Paul points these out as expressions of gratitude and writing to Timothy because they're the powerful shapers of Timothy's life as well. So I want to say this too as we get, jump, we get going. Each of these things that I'm going to point out deserves a sermon in and of itself. So if I move on from one to another and you're like, well, wait a minute, hold on. I get it. They're not the fullest expression of all of these things. It's just helping us to see them and that they're there. Maybe another time down the road, we can come back into a series on them. They all deserve their own time. But let's just look and see. What is it that Paul is so intent on pointing out to Timothy? What things is he expressing gratitude for in a way that brings his heart joy, but also deposits courage into Timothy's heart? And the first thing, often overlooked, is right there in verse 3. And it's the gift of a clean conscience. Did you hear Paul right there where he reminds Timothy in the beginning as he's even writing that all that he's done, really, all the work, all the ministry, all of it he's done to serve God, and he's done it with a clear conscience. Now, does that mean that Paul is sinless? Absolutely not. But before God, Paul stands guiltless. See, Paul is literally living in the blinding light of God's grace and the good news that 
Jesus took Paul's guilt upon himself on the cross. That God had sent his son, and his son lived the life that Paul was created to live. A life of delightful, perfect submission and joy to the word of God the Father. And God's son laid his life down on the cross to pay the price for Paul's sin and Paul's ongoing unwillingness to live in surrender and joy and delight to God the Father. Paul is living his day right there in that prison in the good news that Jesus substituted himself in Paul's place, taking upon himself the judgment of God that Paul deserved. And because of Jesus' work on Paul's behalf, Paul could stand before God the Father, guiltless because of the blood of God the Son. Friends, this is the gift of God for all who would repent of their sins and believe upon Jesus. You've probably sung it at some point in your church life, if you grew up in church, or if you've been around here for any period of time, maybe you didn't even know what you were singing, but my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. The guilt is gone. So there's Paul, doesn't know if at any moment, the next hour, the next day, the next week, they're going to come down to where he is, unchain him, walk him outside the city wall, and take his head off. It's going to happen. He doesn't know when. It could be in any moment. And there he is, chained up to the wall, facing the imminent reality of his death. And is there any sweeter way to approach that day than in the joy of a clean conscience before God? In the knowledge that your sins have been forgiven. That as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10.22, that your conscience has been sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus. Friends, don't overlook and undervalue the gift of God's grace that comes with having a clean conscience. This is the blessing of God that every Christian shares in and anyone who repents of their sins and believes upon Jesus can get in on. It is well with my soul could be your song this morning. Church, let me just ask you, when was the last time that you actually felt and expressed a real gratitude to God for the gift of a clean conscience? Paul moves on from there, though. The the second thing that he points Timothy to in the way that he writes it and is expressing a, a heartfelt gratitude for is the gift of faithful friends. You can hear it in the, the words and phrases Paul uses here. He says, I, I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, verse 4, I, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. How easy is it to overlook and undervalue the gift of faithful friends? Listen to how Paul spoke about Timothy and even 
commended Timothy to the church in Philippi. He said to that church, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, for I have no one like him, no one who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. If you were with us a few weeks ago when we began to kind of overview the letter, you you may remember we talked about the, the unique and deeply valued nature of the relationship between Paul and Timothy, a, a spiritual son and a spiritual father. And we talked about how all of us long for these kinds of relationships, these kinds of, uh, this kind of, of, of family, this kind of unique love, and that I can't promise as a pastor you're going to find that kind of connection here at this church, but we talked about how there's no better place to pray for it and look for it than in the church because of what we have together because of Jesus. And so here is Paul, his spiritual father to Timothy, this spiritual son, but he's also a faithful friend. And he's taken him everywhere he's gone and he's encouraged him. And here's Paul right now in prison. And his heart is longing, wanting to be with and to see his friend again. And I want you to read that with the reality of what we've been experiencing the last year. It's not entirely unlike the longing that many of us have had to be with one another. We've been unable to be with each other in the kinds of ways that we were accustomed to, the kinds of ways we find the greatest benefit in, the kinds of ways that God has wired for us to give and to receive grace to one another as we're all together like this, as we're together when we're outside of here during the week. And we've been unable to do that in the way that we have been accustomed to and in the way that brings us the greatest level of joy. But here's what I want you to see. Even with the kind of isolation that we have experienced and the greater level of isolation that Paul has now in that prison in a hole, longing to be with his friend, he didn't let this isolation keep his faithfulness to his friend at bay. He said, I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As a faithful friend, Paul never stops praying for Timothy. And the grammar that Paul uses here, it's a grammar that would suggest that Paul has multiple times set aside to intentionally pray for Timothy. We know because of Paul's background, he had the habit in his day because of how he was raised and how he was trained to set aside certain blocks of a day and certain times of a week where he would pray intentionally about certain things. And the way it's written here, suggests that he has very intentional time set aside to pray and to intercede for his friend. He might be locked in prison, but Paul is every bit free to come before the throne of grace and pray for Timothy. Friends, what a privilege it is to be able to intercede for a friend. What a gift it is to have faithful friends who will pray for you. Church, have you, have you cultivated the habit to set aside intentional time throughout your day and throughout your week to intentionally pray for those that God has put in your life? You know, one of the things, even while he wasn't with us for the last year, one of the things that Shelby has worked very hard on behind the scenes is the creation of a, a membership directory here, a digital one. 
You probably got an email about an update for that this week. If you go and, and put your picture and your information in there and you're a member of this church, at any point during the day, you can set aside a particular amount of time. You can pull up the directory. You can see names, faces, and people. You can take your reflection from your CBR reading that we were all reading and what God has shown you about his grace that day. Look at particular families in a directory and pray that for them right there. Can't see them. Maybe can't go eat with them. Maybe can't go out with them. Maybe can't gather with them. But faithfully, you can pray for them. Chained up to a wall, he was still free. Free to intercede before God on behalf of his friend. He not only prays consistently for Timothy, he also uses the means that were available to him at the time to encourage Timothy in the gospel, to encourage him to pursue godliness, to encourage him to respond appropriately to those who might disagree with him, to encourage him to use the gifts that God has given him, to encourage him to see the calling that God has given him rightly, to continue to study God's word, to continue to speak God's word, to continue to evangelize with the gospel consistently. Even though he was separated from him, isolated from the one he loved, he used the means that were necessary, that were at his disposal, the writing of a letter, to continue to encourage him. That's a faithful friend using the opportunities available to deposit gospel courage in someone else's heart, reminding friends to enjoy God's grace, reminding friends to pursue Christ-likeness, to reflect on the gospel, to enjoy the gospel, to continue spreading the good news of the gospel. What a way to go out. We don't know how many days after this that Paul's last would be spent on this earth, but we do know that those days were spent in gratitude with a clear conscience, perpetually interceding for and taking every opportunity to continue to disciple and encourage God's people. That's the way to go. But there are other gifts that Paul is particularly grateful for, and he points out to Timothy by way of reminder, reminding Timothy of God's kindness and faithfulness to him in these things, and therefore giving thanks to God for these things, being grateful for these things. The, the next thing would be the gift of a faithful family. Verse 5, Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. You might remember Timothy's mom and grandmom were, were Jewish and his dad was Greek. So Timothy came from and grew up in an ethnically and religiously blended house. And his mom and his grandmom, as, as faithful Jewish women, were acquainted with what we know of as the Old Testament scriptures and were faithful to acquaint Timothy from the time he was born with those scriptures. So, when Paul comes through Lystra on his first missionary journey and begins to teach the gospel in the synagogue, many come to faith in Jesus. Timothy's mom and grandma were some of those who came to faith in Jesus as they saw that gospel, those, those scriptures they were so acquainted with now through the lens of Christ. Jesus being the long-awaited promised Messiah, the anointed one, the king. And what did they do? They began to help Timothy see those same scriptures they had acquainted him with through that same lens of Christ. Oh, what a gift. And Paul says, Timothy, don't forget 
Their faith was sincere. It was real. And so is yours. Don't let your doubt, don't let your struggle, don't let your disappointment, don't let it creep in that everything you're teaching and everything you're believing is just because your mom and dad said so. No, Timothy, your faith was sincere. It was the real deal. You came to a point where you recognized the kingship of Jesus and the fullness of God's promises. And you repented of your sins. And you surrendered to this king. And you became his disciple. Friends, this is what we want for everyone. This is what we want in particular for our kids. We want our kids to have a sincere faith in Jesus. To believe upon him as their king and as their savior. Parents, do your kids see a sincere faith in Jesus lived out in your life every day? Please don't underestimate the value of the sincerity of your faith being put on display in every little way throughout a day on the life of your kids. Yes, acquaint them with the scriptures. Yes, tie them to that which is able to make them wise into salvation. But are you living out a sincere faith in Jesus, the King in front of them? Don't underestimate that. Church, are we living out a sincere faith in Jesus before the kids that God is bringing here? As a spiritual family, it's of utmost importance to us that we not just take every opportunity to help acquaint our kids with the scriptures, but at the same time, as extended family, to put on display the sincerity of faith in Christ, the joy and the delight of surrender. It's of utmost importance to us around here. And and I want to say this too, because it always gets brought up. Sure, God's perfect design would have been for Timothy to have had a believing mom and a believing dad living out the sincerity of faith in Jesus every single day in front of him. But that wasn't Timothy's reality. And for many of you, you look at your childhood, you look at your background, and you realize how imperfect it was in every way. This morning, as you're hearing God's word, be reminded that the power of God's promises aren't limited by your circumstances. And they weren't for Timothy either. And remember, for some of you here in this room, that statistically in this country, and I would, I would say it probably stands to reason globally, but at least in this country, there are more believing mothers than there are fathers in the home. Moms, don't underestimate the power of what you are putting on display and sowing into the hearts of your kids. I was telling this in the first service. I, I, I imagine that in eternity, when all of God's people are gathered together and we're worshiping together from every tribe, tongue, and nation throughout all of history, there will be further than the eye can see 
countless numbers of women whom God has used to see the hearts of their children and their husband changed and transformed and come to a place of delightful surrender to King Jesus. For many of you in this room, many of you listening this morning, may God grant you the strength to follow in the line of women like Lois and Eunice. Timothy, don't underestimate the gift of God's grace in giving you faithful family like you had. But lastly, there's, there's one more thing. Lastly, Paul, Paul is grateful to God, and he's pointing Timothy back to this, grateful to God for the gift of his spirit in Timothy's life. Verses 6 and 7, Paul says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now, Bible scholars, I am just going to point out to you this morning what is implied in what Paul just said. We are going to pick up with these verses next week so that you can understand the argument that he's beginning to make, because this is really kind of the start of where he's going, and I'm kind of cutting it off. So I promise you, we're going to come back and tease this out a little bit more. But don't miss what's implied right here. Paul is grateful to God for the gift of God's Spirit and the gifts that God's Spirit gives and has given to Timothy. We're going to see as we unpack it each week nearly that Timothy wasn't your prototypical leader, whatever that actually means. Sells a lot of books, but Timothy will remind us and encourage more of us than others that God never shrinks back from using cracked clay vessels to put on display to a watching world the extraordinary nature of his power. No one's writing books about Timothy. They're writing to Timothy, but not about him in this sense. And Paul's expression of gratitude here is serving to remind Timothy that God has given him his Holy Spirit, and his Holy Spirit has given Timothy all that he needs to accomplish the calling that God has set him apart for. Timothy, don't forget God has called you, he's given you the authority, and he's enabled you to do all that he's calling you to do. God's spirit, empowering God's people, is entirely sufficient for accomplishing God's mission. Timothy, God has called you, given you his spirit, given you his gifts. As Luther would write, in a mighty fortress is our God, the spirit and his gifts are ours. Praise be to God. You're not lacking, Timothy. And friends, I want you to see that the same spirit that Paul is pointing Timothy back to is the very same spirit that changed Paul's heart. It's the very same spirit that made Paul a new creation. It's the very same spirit that right then and there, as he puts the quill to the parchment, is 
at work in his heart. And this very same spirit that Paul is reminding Timothy that has taken up residence in him, has enabled him to do the very thing that God has called him to do. It's the same spirit and the same power that has cultivated in Paul this eternal perspective that's given him the lens to see that his happiness is anchored in someone far greater than the walls that he's chained to. This same spirit has worked in Paul the perspective to see and to live in freedom. He's free right there in the Mamertine prison. Free to praise God. Free to see all of the evidences of God's ongoing faithfulness and goodness and rejoice express gratitude for. Why? Because ingratitude is intolerable. You see it all throughout Paul. What's intolerable, what should be intolerable to God's people? Ingratitude. For all of God's continued, ongoing works of faithfulness and goodness. Friends, if all Paul saw when he wrote this letter were his chains... And every single time he wrestled against them, all he came to grips with was his powerlessness to get out of them, to break them. Then the only path for Paul would be a path of despair, of anger, and of bitterness. But his circumstances didn't dictate his thoughts. His perspective had been changed. His heart had been captured by a living king who saved him by his grace, who washed his conscience clean. And now Paul's trust was in him, his goodness, his power. This clarified everything for Paul. The purpose for why he was where he was and the evidence of the ongoing faithfulness and goodness of the king in Timothy's life and in others around him. This perspective allows Paul to take every opportunity that's in front of him, even if it's just writing a letter, to encourage his friend, to take every opportunity around to intercede for his friend, to express gratitude for the often overlooked and undervalued gifts of God's grace that God has given to Timothy to shape him into the man that he was becoming, Timothy. Don't underestimate and overlook the gift of having a clean conscience. Timothy, don't overlook and undervalue the sincerity of your faith. Church, don't overlook and undervalue the gift of faithful friends. Christian, don't underlook and overvalue the gift of having or establishing a faithful family. Christian, Do not overlook and undervalue the gift of God's grace in giving you his very spirit and the gifts necessary to accomplish the purpose that God has for your life. Church, this very same spirit is alive and at work in you right now. That means we can be people who are marked by consistent, 
and sincere gratitude. We can be a people who are known for the practiced intentionality of rejoicing in God's ongoing kindness and works of grace in one another's lives. We can be a people known for the practiced work of gratitude. It doesn't matter our present or our past circumstances. The same Spirit is alive and at work in our hearts and lives. So we have this choice. Will we tolerate ingratitude in light of God's ongoing kindness and faithfulness? Or will we fight to see our life in the light of God's promises and his ongoing goodness to us in his Son? Let me pray for us this morning as we prepare to respond to God's word together. Father, we need your spirit to continue to work in our hearts to help us to see, to not overlook, to not minimize, to not miss, but to see the ongoing work of your faithfulness and your goodness and your steadfastness and the working out of your promises to your people all around us. God, help us to put to get to death in our own hearts the envy and the covetousness that would blind our eyes from seeing just how faithful you continue to be. Lord, keep us from getting caught in the ditch of living in our own sense of despair and the ongoing making of lists and checking off of boxes of ways we think our needs and our wants aren't being met by people around us. And Lord, lift our eyes up to see your continued faithfulness and goodness to your Son. Let the light that provides direction and sight to our eyes and to our lives be that of your ongoing faithfulness. Lord, make us by your Spirit to be a people known for rejoicing in every sight of your goodness, in every sight of your ongoing work of transformation. Let us be a people who together are intolerant towards ingratitude to you. Lord, we ask that you would do that work in our hearts, not just this morning, but each and every day forward. In Jesus' good name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.